rich man nor the rich man. Lord knows they all just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think, wanna know what you do, and they don't think you know. But I know that you do. Cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's tax to no end. Those are it. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner with the Hall of Fame pitcher. This is episode 335 on the network. We've got a great show for you today, covering World Series play, a little bit of youth sports here. Uh, Some great observations by Jim underway. But before we get going, just want to thank our newest partner here, Blackout Coffee. Uh, Thanks uh, to our 55,000-plus subscribers now. We partnered with Blackout Coffee to reward you guys. So 74 countries are eligible for this. Uh, Grassroots MLB front office, doesn't matter how old you are or where you work, you can subscribe to Blackout Coffee. Go to their website. Use the code DAVID, D-A-V-I-D, with the number 20 after it, all capital letters with the number 20 after it. And if you purchase coffee from Blackout Coffee, they will make sure that you get a 20% discount at checkout. And that's a thank you to our listeners. I know we do our morning shows here, so I'm drinking my blackout coffee right now. And I just wanted to give something back to you guys out there. So with that, I want to welcome our star of the show, Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, appreciate it. A lot of uh, you know exciting news in baseball, I think, with last night. Well, some disappointing. Uh, longtime good friend Frank Howard passed away at age 87. What a gentle, giant, humble, you know, humble man intimidating presence in the batter's box. But, uh, you know, last night's game, uh, it kind of reminded me of a game. I pitched game seven of the 1965 World Series, and that game was decided by three pitches in a span of, I would say, less than two minutes. And I gave up a home run to Lou Johnson, a double to Ron Fairley. Wes Parker doing his job, moving the runner over, hit a little bloop single. All of a sudden, it was two to nothing, and uh, that's where it ended. And we got one base runner against Sandy Koufax after that. So last night reminded me of a game like that because there's well over 200 pitches thrown, but yet there were like six plays, two two decisions by uh, Alfonso Marquez, the home plate umpire, and then a base running mistake and a great play by Corey Seager. And that basically was the ball game. Yeah. The, uh, you, you mentioned the base running by, by Walker, you know, from watching the replays of that, he, he really, and we kind of impressed this. We talk about youth baseball all the time, surveying the outfield before you even take your lead, know where they're being played, but he got a poor primary lead. He got a poor secondary lead. He got a poor jump, and then he didn't pick up his base coach. I mean, several crucial mistakes just in that one play. Yeah, and that's you know that's why I get a little nitpicky about as soon as a runner gets on first or second, they look in the dugout and they begin to they've got all these little signs with their teammates and they celebrate. And I'm thinking in a case like that, uh, you know, as soon as you hit second base, you're there with nobody out. So you know the, the next guy's going to try to move you over, which Tommy Pham did. He had a great at-bat. So you, you have to be thinking, all right, what do I have to do, you know, as far as my lead goes? Where are the outfielders? And I don't know if they really think those things, but I noticed right away Christian Walker almost stopped at third base like he didn't think he was going to be waved home. And then he turned on the Jets, and it was too late. So, you know, that was a – that was a very key play, and he owned up to it—a bad base running mistake. But it's this: the, those mental things in the game that, instead of the celebration, wait till after the game. But as soon as you get on second or first, wherever it is, begin to think about: all right, what's going to happen next? What do I have to do? Where are the outfielders playing? Let's anticipate. This guy's going to try to hit it to the other side. I, you know, I want to get a good jump. Make sure I get to third and. Uh, those little things like that, that, that was one example. Of course, the, I, I don't think the Diamondbacks did enough to say they deserved to win, uh, but they got two really uh, bad calls by Alfonso Marquez, and, and not to say he had a bad game because uh, if you checked out every pitch that he called, maybe he only missed a few of them, but those two where he missed strike three on Nathaniel Lowe, and then the Lowe got a double, scored uh, their first run. 
And then the one where a leadoff walk in the bottom of the ninth may have made a difference. But uh, realistically, they, they didn't do enough to deserve to win the game. And that was really the Corey Seager game, uh, the, the home run, and then the great play he made turning it into a double play. Uh, that kind of decided it. I was, uh, again, this is nitpicking on my part from past experience, but as a pitching coach, uh, anytime I went to the mound, if I had to go to the mound, and usually I only went there to buy some time for a reliever to get ready, but if I was motivated to go to the mound, it almost told me that I didn't do my job preparing this pitcher for the game, because if I did my job and he was prepared, why would I have to go to the mound? And I thought Stromy, and I, I love Brent Strom, good friend of his, have been for a long time, but he made that trot out to the mound just before Seager's home run. And oftentimes when you go out there and put a thought in the pitcher's mind, maybe the pitcher and the catcher are thinking differently already. They faced Seager once, you know, they're thinking about what they're going to do. And now all of a sudden, I don't know if he said, hey, you know, first ball hitter, throw him a change up. And he did, but he hung it and it was a two-run homer. Uh, so, you know, those are just the few things in that game, uh, that resulted in a three to one win, the little, little things that don't show up with the launch angle or exit velocity or spin rate or anything like that. They're just, uh, little mistakes that can, that can happen and no knock on Marquez. I mean, like players, umpires are going to make mistakes too. Oh, sure. I do. Yeah. And umpires are under that, uh, automated strike zone potential now, but you, you brought up a good point with players asking themselves questions in the middle of a situation because there's a zillion thoughts that should be going through their head. And I hate to belabor the point because we hit on it uh, on all of our shows, but the critical thinking of the game of baseball is is being lost. And I don't know if it's intentional, but between index cards and iPads and predetermined movements before things happened, I want, often wonder if our current players are, are uh, have the necessary skill sets to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're allowing them to do that instead of using their brain. And, uh, you know, we fortunately, we didn't have all those devices and information at our disposal back when we played. We kind of relied on learning how to play the game. As, as my friend, the, uh, the late, great Dick Allen, put his arm around Goose Gossage, and uh, when Goose got called up, by the White Sox, and he said, son, just look at the scoreboard, and that will tell you how to play. What's the score? What's the inning? What's the count? And then, uh, as as I've said before, and I I used to say it a lot on, uh, on, a tele, on telecast, is that baseball is a slow-paced game, but things happen in a hurry when you're on the field. And if you don't anticipate uh, – that, you know, what's going to happen, you, you're going to fall behind, like in Christian Walker's case. I mean, he's got to be saying, okay, base hit the right side. I got to get a good jump. I got to get a good lead. All, all your thoughts should be on what am I going to do based on what's going to happen and, uh, you know, do the celebrating later. I don't know where this started. The NFL, it's almost getting unwatchable when, uh, when a team makes a play or scores a touchdown. I mean, it's like all of a sudden they've turned into kindergarten playground. Uh, but I don't, know, I don't know where it started, but I think it, in baseball, you, you really can't blame the players. I think it began in college, and I think now we have a lot more influence, uh, a lot more participation in the big leagues by former college players. Uh, and that kind of celebrating uh, started there. But uh, Sometimes it takes away from the game, and I, I don't think, and oftentimes, it's, a, it's really a good image for the sport. I don't think it really uh, teaches our young people things that uh, we, I'd, I'd rather be teaching them how to run the bases and how to celebrate. Yeah, I think it's probably a smart thing to do. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a little lost here. I was curious, you know, when, and again, we won't know this because they won't reveal it, but, you know, when, when Strom went out to the mound, uh, what he said, because, you know, as, again, I got this advice from a a veteran coach when I started coaching collegiately. And the caution I got was using the word don't uh, when you're communicating with somebody under fire or in the middle of competition, because the word don't say, don't, you know, don't hang a curveball, uh, you know, don't, don't give in, uh, you know, on something on the inside of the play, whatever, whatever it was, your brain automatically goes to doing that and you can't get it out of your head. Um, I, I wonder if uh, how, how that was communicated last night when he went to the mound, that was kind of my, 
thinking out yeah. loud. Well, that, that's a good that's a good story there because I had it happen early in my career when I was a, a young pitcher, and everybody, you know, everybody wants to give advice to pitchers, and uh, you know, when I was coaching for the Reds, I seldom made a trip to the mound. The only time I did was to buy time starting pitcher was getting roughed up and you wanted to give that guy in the bullpen a little more time. And uh, Joe Morgan, uh, and this was not mean spirited by Joe, uh, just as an aside, we were fiercely competitive against each other when we played to the point that I don't think we liked each other very well, but we, we became really good, good friends after that. And uh, what a great player he was, but he was, he was doing television for the Reds and uh, Jay Tibbs was struggling. Tibbs, was our starting pitcher that night. And so Joe said, well, I'm wondering why the pitching coach doesn't go out to the mound kind of and settle him down. So a couple of days later, I saw Joe around the batting cage and I said, Joe, I heard that you you wondered why I didn't go to the mound. And I said, I'll I'll just give you this and see what you think. I said, you're batting with the bases loaded and you step in the box and you're getting ready to hit. And all of a sudden time is called and the hitting coach comes out and calls you out of the box and starts, Hey, you got to keep your shoulder in. You got to do all of a sudden he takes your mind to something else. They never do that to hitters, but they always think they can go out and tell pitchers what to do. And I had a game in Detroit early in my career. We were, we were behind early. I think I gave up four runs early. And we bounced back and we kept chipping away. Now, all of a sudden, we have a five to four lead and we go to the bottom of the ninth. And I get the first two men out and time. And our manager, Sam Mealy, comes to the mound. Billy Bruton is the hitter. He's a left-hand hitter. Tiger Stadium is a very convenient right field short porch. So you don't want to let a lefty pull the ball. So Sam comes out and said, don't let this guy pull the ball. Well, like I didn't know that, <laughs> I mean, but like you said, it puts it down. I was lucky. I got him out. He hit a little lazy fly ball to right center. But right away, instead of my thoughts going to this is how I'm going to pitch him, it goes to don't do this. And, and exactly your point, you don't want to put those kinds of thoughts in a pitcher or any player when they're out there playing. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Seeger having a kind of a coming out party. I know he's known by baseball. He's got the big contract. I thought Baltimore had the right idea early on in the playoffs where they just walked him. They pitched around him. They wouldn't let him swing the bat. Um, with Garcia, he's probably going to be out, right, with the looks like the injury from last uh, last game. How, how would you approach the Seager situation in that lineup? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the way, way we did things before all the scientific information on scouting reports and where to pitch guys – you you followed the box scores, and, and if a guy is in a hot streak like that, I remember Dale Murphy, the great outfielder with the Braves, when Murph was in a hot streak, you might as well just walk him or try to make him chase something because it's just tough to get him out. So if Seeger is in that position, I mean, they did that to Barry Bonds for years when he was in the middle of his, you know, he had a lot of hot streaks in his career, but they did that to him often. And, yes, I, th- I think that's what uh, – uh, what Tori Lavello will look at with these uh, now he's starting a left-hander. They're doing this opener tonight, which, which really uh, kind of takes away from the attraction of the World Series when you'd really love to see a matchup of uh, marquee starting pitchers. But we don't have that anymore. But uh, uh, yeah, and I think if Garcia isn't there, I would assume that was some kind of an oblique uh, uh, injury, and and we see more of those now than we did years ago because guys swing the bat so hard. You know, they swing, they take a lot of swings before the game. And I think, you know, it's a late, it's a long season. And he's done that for a long period of time. And all of a sudden, bingo, something something must have happened on one of those swings. Yeah. You, you didn't see oblique injuries from hitters in your day from swinging the bat, though, right? Never even. The only thing I heard, when I heard the word oblique, I think I was in trigonometry class or something or geometry. I never heard it on the baseball field. But no. oh, I, I think in, with, with all the, the uh, hitting practice they get to do in the tunnels underneath uh, before the game, uh, and then with the power that they swing the bat, we have an increase in those, I'd say, in the last decade, a lot of them. Yeah. It makes me ponder too, though. Like, you know, you bring up that point or we bring up that point about hitters not being injured, doing what their craft basically. But we all, we often say today that today's players are much better athletes, but I, 
I, I'd, I'd kind of like to let somebody in that field just redefine what they mean by better athlete because they look good. Their, their muscles look bigger. They, I guess, can run faster and have more perceived power, but they're, they're injured more often. And I, I, guess we, we, I guess as a society, we have to de- redefine maybe what better athlete means. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think I say that often that they're physically, they are, they're more gifted than we were, uh, you know, throwing, running, power, speed. But, you know, there are some, there are some skills that aren't measurable, like the ones that Brooks Robinson possessed, you know, with say average arm, average speed, uh, you know, uh, average power. And there that I guess that comes under the heading of baseball IQ. Pete Rose would be the epitome of that. Uh, you know, player that couldn't run fast, didn't have a lot of power, didn't have much range, didn't have a strong arm. But uh, I'll guarantee you, as soon as he hit second base on a double, he was looking around and he knew exactly where everybody was playing and what he was going to do when that ball was hit. And that, that just comes with the heading of, uh, of baseball IQ. And again, I, I have to point to uh, I have to point to management and, and the way spring training goes. I don't think they spend enough time at those little things. Uh, I know the the Red Sox are already quoted as saying they're going to do more of that next spring, but it's a much more relaxed uh, atmosphere in spring training than it was years ago. So without all that power, speed, strong arm that that we were not gifted with. We put a lot of time into those little things, uh, so we, you know, we gave ourselves the best chance to play the game the right way and make good decisions. Yeah, you don't give away outs. And I thought about this when Walker had his full pot third base. You know, one of the basic things, and I learned this as a as a high school player, reiterated as a college player, reiterated as a pro, and now I pass it on to the kids that I'm involved with, even uh, you know, even the, the young ones. When you're approaching third base, and I hope our young audience is listening. Your job as a base runner is to score. So you'd never approach third base with the idea of, I'm going to stop. Your coach's job there is to stop you. Your job is to run through. And that that may have, that little nuance may have uh, prevented him from doing that little sputter he did where he slowed down and started up again. Yeah, he didn't make it, as you mentioned, and, and you did it, I'm sure, as a, as a baby, you make that little you make that little curve, almost like you're making a question mark when you're running towards third. You curve out toward left so that you have the angle getting at full speed, touching the bag, and goes towards home. And those are things, I mean, we used to run the bases in spring training, even the pitchers. You know, run the bases time after time to learn how to make your turn. Uh, and, and he ran straight into third base as if he was made up his mind he was he was going to stop. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a little little uh, tidbit. You, you touched on tonight's game a little bit with them starting a. Well, it's, I guess it's a little little hard to say. They're starting a closer um, in the game. How do you get to that point this time of the year? Obviously, they're not training pitchers to go deeper into the year, but this is the World Series. Like this is supposed to be, as you said, your your communication with the commissioner's offices. In this stage, especially, you want to see main starter against main starter. Nobody wants to pay a ticket to go watch a middle guy start a game for an inning. Well, you know, we've, we've talked about it before and I've been, I met with the commissioner. I met with Morgan sword, who was the head of baseball ops. And that's a concern for major league baseball. They, they'd like to cut down on the number of pitchers that a team is allowed to, to carry. And they would like to implement, and it's got to go back to youth baseball with parents and coaches in, and try to develop more durable starting pitchers. I mean, to think now tonight, Andrew Heaney, and he has a chance to to finally prove his worth with the time he's been in the big leagues. He's 32 years old. He was a number one draft pick. He has never really lived up to expectations. He had one decent year with the Angels. He pitched one complete game, but he averages now about four or five innings to start. So that's all you're going to get out of him tonight. If he does four innings of one run ball, he'll get high fives all up and down the dugout. And I think the days of when, you know, you saw Koufax and Gibson, uh, you know, three, three starts in a world series, the specialization has taken that away. And now all of a sudden it's crept all the way down into the minor leagues, even into the regular season where we just don't develop pitchers that you can say we're going to get uh, seven innings out of this guy tonight or maybe more. And that's, 
we, we have to, I say, we, the game of baseball, I think, to be attractive. Uh, I think that's a big part of the appeal to a fan. I mean, I'm sure baseball got beat up again last night by the NFL as far as the TV ratings. Because unless you're a Diamondback fan or a Texas fan, uh, you know, the ratings are, they go down every year. And I think the appeal years ago was, wow, Gibson's pitch. I remember he hooked up with my friend Jim Lonborg in Boston. You really looked forward to the starting pitcher matchups. Yeah. And that, uh, they, Major League Baseball stayed away from having a Sunday World Series game in part to not battle with the NFL. And with how, uh, you know, I don't want to make this a, chronicle the NFL, but the NFL is, is, is tough to watch right now. And I would have thought Major League Baseball would have jumped on that, but their ratings are, are down significantly um, for the World Series. We, we want to uh, transition to, to youth baseball. I, I, I know you, you and I traded notes back and forth. Um, you know, if you coached youth baseball, and we've got youth baseball kids listening in this audience, tons of parents and kids are going to watch tonight. Everybody's looking to the MLB. How, how do I do it? How do I pitch? How do I throw? How do I run? How do I behave after successes? But I want to ask you, Hall of Famer Jim Cott, you know, if what would you do if you coached youth baseball? Well, I think what I would do, and I'll use a, a little instance that happened to a friend of mine. I don't, want, I don't want to mention the sport, the teams, or anything because uh, I don't want to throw him under the bus and uh, cause a lot of animosity with a coach, but a uh, a young player who was one of the best players on the team. He's 10 years old in youth sports, and uh, they won the game, but suddenly the coach lit into this young player, 10 years old. And I said to him, it was the son of my friend of mine. I said, well, if that were my son, I would be in that coach's face right now and say, we will get another team to play for. Because if I'm, uh, if I'm a youth coach, I want to make it clear that, first of all, the percentages – of you ever becoming a professional in that sport are small. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to dream. I mean, I know all about that. That's what I wanted to do. But you have to be realistic about the percentages. So here's the deal. You're here to enjoy it and enjoy your teammates. We'd like to win, but uh, we want you to look back uh, in your life and say, wow, this was really an enjoyable time. Uh, made a lot of good relationships. I had fun. I enjoyed it. Right now, the young boy that was criticized, he doesn't even want to go to practice. So I think uh, we have to get away from the ego-driven coaches. Uh, and having had experience in professional baseball, I, I, looking back, I, uh, I can understand why the coaches that have never played professional baseball, and all of a sudden they think, well, this is going to be their chance uh, you know, to be coach of the year or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, somehow we've got to get away from that because I, I would instill in the kids that, look, you're all going to play uh, and we're going to have a good time. I hope we do well. I hope we win. Now, when you get in the higher levels, uh, maybe even in high school, then I think competition becomes a little more serious. And then when your bodies have matured physically, no matter what the sport is, uh, you know, then you can you can try to do some things that you didn't do when you're 10, 11 years old. But with the injuries that we're, we're having in, on the professional level, a lot of those are starting way back. And this is my, not my expertise. This is a doctor like Dr. James Andrews. This is happening back in, in the early years, 9, 10, 11 years old, where we're, we're asking a lot of these kids competition-wise, uh, you know, strict uh, rules that we're having, hey, show up, we got practices uh, all day long, whatever. They're just overwhelming them with uh, with pressure to perform at a young age. And, and that takes its toll, I think, both, both mentally and physically. Yeah, I think the point well taken, we're asking these young kids to to train, to play, to work, and to handle these situations like, like they're adults. And I, I don't want to reveal who who the, the, the situation's about, but just for our audience, an age range, we're talking under 12 years old. Yeah, this was, uh, this boy was 10 years old. Yeah. Oh. And, yeah. uh, that's, so I, I think youth, uh, uh, youth, I know I saw it in, uh, when I was in the Netherlands years ago, they do such a great job. I think we've talked before about they use a smaller baseball. They have some former, uh, 
you know, minor league managers, coaches in the U.S. that have gone over there. They're subsidized by the by the government, and they really train kids both mentally and physically uh, in the fundamentals. But they don't put this, you know, they club. They have clubs over there, baseball clubs. So you'll have a field, and then you have like a dining room and a lounge where the parents, while the kids are out playing, they can sit up there, have dinner, maybe have a drink, but they're not glued to the kid's game and jumping up and down and screaming at him. It's just a time of enjoyment for them to come out and play. And that's, that's what we need to get to with our, with our uh, youth here. I, I'd like, I've said it before. I would like to see uh, with the little league, their parents uh, take the kids to the ballpark and then go see a movie and then come back afterwards. And then when they get home, kind of say, well, how did you enjoy that tonight? Versus uh, when the, when the parents are sitting in the stands and screaming and hollering for, Johnny to get the next big hit. Yep. My favorite, my favorite, uh, s- screaming phrase in the stand. Doesn't matter what sport it is. I love the open end of open ended essay question. What are you doing? Like the kid's going to stop and explain. They obviously don't know what they're doing, right. um, but that's, <laughs> they're out there. <laughs> I, uh, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, I just, I, I don't know if it'll be solved in my lifetime. I think I mentioned, I was I met with Rick Porcello the other day and, former big leaguer, still a young man in his 30s, and he's committed to try to do something, as in Major League Baseball. But, uh, boy, it just happens every year, the horror stories you hear about the uh, uh, the behavior of parents and coaches for what it does, uh, I think, to kill the enthusiasm of our kids. It's just not fair to them. They're just, they're just there to enjoy it. It's recreation. Yeah. Well, we, we, we talk a lot about the physical injuries of kids uh, that, that get pushed into this this crazy training world that we have out there now. Um, and then we're talking about this situation today, but I'll tell you what, there, uh, arm injuries can be repaired, but uh, an amputated spirit, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned for that young man. I hope uh, he takes a break and comes back stronger than ever. But one, one of the things that you, you hit on a great point with, with these coaches, whether it's youth coaches all the way up the line, sometimes these coaches I've observed, they believe people are there to watch them as if it's their show. And it's yeah. not. It's the kids. Right. Yeah, where I was most impressed, uh, it was when my son-in-law years ago, my, my granddaughter was, uh, let's see, she's 20 now, so that's seven or eight years ago. And he said, would you, uh, would you come watch uh, Casey's softball team practice and then speak to him? And obviously, I'm going to do that. But I thought, how boring is this going to be? Watch 12-year-old girls playing softball practice. And I came away so impressed, uh, much more so than watching a Little League baseball game. The diamond is smaller. They're well-trained. They're having a good time. They're fundamentally sound. Uh, Nobody's screaming and hollering at them. And and I said to my son-in-law afterwards, I said, I will come and watch, uh, you know, a a young teenage girl's softball games before I'll go to a Little League game because they were having so much fun. And the coaches, I gave them a lot of credit. They just, they were so sharp with their fundamentals. And there wasn't any screaming and hollering at them. It was all encouraging, which is as it should be. Yeah. And what was the age group of these these girls again? I think they were like 12 and 13. The, the Ridgewood team went on and they played in the Nationals out in uh, out in Washington. So they were a good team. But uh, yeah, it was just the fact that they, they all, you could just tell by looking around the field, they were all having a good time. And they were enjoying him, themselves. And I'm sure even today at age, uh, I think Casey's 20, they would probably look back and have developed some nice relationships with the, you know, with their teammates. And that's, that's what it should be about. Yeah. Those are two, two key points. I hope our audience grabs onto is that, you know, you, you want to enjoy yourself. You're spending an awful lot of time out there in, in today's world. These kids are spending almost like full-time jobs training. I, I hope they enjoy it. Um, it is too much, but there's a socialization aspect that I think gets overlooked uh, in sports and in school nowadays where um, kids are so droned out on, you know, achieve, 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 achieve that they've forgotten that those are two, if they are wanting to achieve, enjoying yourself and, and socialization are two things that actually help you achieve down the road. I think I think back because I'm I'm trying to pinpoint where uh, again with Rick Porcello we were talking about on the big league level where the game really changed was probably 
seven or eight years ago where it really with this advent of stat cast and exit velocity and analytics and all that it really has changed in the last eight ten years so i was thinking back to my you know days as a kid of course we just played sandlot ball until i think i was 14 or 15 played american legion baseball but there was never we knew we were playing a certain team and we wanted to win but when the game was over immediately as hey we're going to A and W and get a root beer float. You know, that's a highlight of the night. So win or lose, we had that to look forward to. And then, you know, then when you get into high school and college and you get a little more serious about the competition. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll ask you this, this, uh, it's kind of a, it's a made up scenario, but I, it's prevalent throughout youth sports. I want to see how you'd handle it. As soon as these kids are done with the games, as much as we all want to believe our kids are super, super competitive at a young age, they forget about what happened out there pretty quickly. Um, so I see a lot of these kids from the, whether it's the dugout or the court, all the way to the car, they've got mom and dad in both ears. And then I'm assuming in the car ride home, they're, they're recapping every scenario in the game. What are your thoughts on that approach? Oh, it's, it's, it's terrible. And I hear about it from, from people I, I, that I mingle with that have young kids that are playing and, and that's all they're talking about is how, well, this, my son now at 12 is much more talented than his dad was. And we talk, you know, they talk about what went on during the, uh, during the lacrosse game or whatever it was. And, and again, it just gets back to a very simple thing that parents have to recognize and coaches that they're there to enjoy it and have fun. And if they don't, uh, uh, they're probably going to lose interest in the sport pretty quickly. I, when I was a bat boy as a, as a youngster uh, for our town team back in Michigan, we had this outstanding uh, right-hand pitcher. Uh, he would, in a, you know, he would strike out in a seven inning game. He would strike out 16, you know, through hard by our standards. We didn't know what the, what the uh, miles per hour was, but his dad would sit behind the bench. And if he didn't have X number of strikeouts by the fifth inning, his dad would start, Hey, Bobby, you only got five strikeouts. I mean, I'm so fortunate. I didn't have a dad that did that, but I think that's where, you know, the best thing that dad could do was go sit in the car, wait till the game's over. <laughs> oh yeah. I, so, you know, we're, we're very numbers driven nowadays and the percentages of, as you mentioned earlier, a kid going from even making the high school team, or if they're fortunate enough to play collegially or even smaller minor league baseball, even smaller Major League Baseball, and then obviously the Hall of Fame. Those numbers are, I mean, they're 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 the tiniest of of tiny. In in knowing that, and being such a numbers driven world, what should the role be of these? Whether it's a youth coach, even high school coaches nowadays, knowing that the numbers are very slim, that these kids are are that's maybe their last game. Well, I think it still should be on enjoyment. I look back on, you know, always in the back of my mind, my dream was to play Major League Baseball from the time I was eight or nine. Uh, nobody ever quoted the percentages. I don't know if I ever thought about them, but, uh, you know, I just look back on it as that, you know, I, I was gifted with the ability to do that. But I, I never felt any pressure to, you know, to perform at a, a certain level. Uh, I just, I, I truly played the games for enjoyment and it just kind of evolved in the fact that, uh, I remember I asked, uh, my mother after my dad had passed away, I said, did he ever mention that he thought I was a pretty good baseball player or something? And my mother said, you know, he said when you were in high school, he said, I think this boy has some special talent. He never mentioned that to me, yeah. but I never felt any pressure to live up to a certain you know, a certain level. And yeah, I think we have to be, we have to be honest with, with young athletes and, and yet not, not crush their dreams, but be honest with them that the percentages of getting to the top level in a professional sport, when you look at the, you know, the thousands of kids that are participating, they're pretty small. But I actually think if you play the game in those formative years for fun and enjoyment and don't feel this overwhelming pressure, I think whatever talent you have is going to come to the front and to the top more so 
than if you're pressured by parents and coaches to, hey, you want to get a college scholarship, you know, let's go to this school, you get more exposure. I think that puts undue pressure on kids. And, and I think without that, they may, their talent may, you know, may rise to the top quicker than trying to force it. Yeah. Well, you, you used a key. I heard you say it was your goal. It wasn't your family's goal. It wasn't a community's goal. It was your goal. It was singular possessive. And that, that to me, I'm a, I'm a language buff. So I pay attention to that. I, I think that's probably a key thing that you had going for you. It was yours and yours alone. Nobody pushed you into it. Nowadays, it seems like a community goal. Like every kid's got a little entourage around them and you, you created your own expectations where a lot of these kids nowadays have not just the people around them, but these fake expectations on social media that maybe we didn't go through. I, I've, I've got a question now regarding that, that young boy we, you were talking about earlier. If you had a chance to sit down and, and, and I'm sure you have a little bit since he's close, but counsel, counsel him. And then on a separate note, counsel that coach, what would be the two, how would those two conversations go? Well, I think first of all, it would be just if, if it was if it was my son, I would have pulled him away from that immediately. But I think my main conversation would be with, with the coach, you know, and it would be what what are you doing, you know, coaching these kids that are eight, nine, ten years old and they're out here for recreation, and you're screaming at them like they're they're playing in a competitive professional league, and uh, you know that I'd, I'd have to in, in the boys' case, uh, I think that. The, the parents, they're, they're put in a tough position because they're, you know, your son or your daughter, they love the sport, but they don't want to go back and practice if they're going to be uh, treated like that. So uh, I, I think it's a case if you want to con- continue to, to encourage your child to participate and have fun. But if you don't have coaches that will allow them to do that, then there's the problem. Then we have to, we have to, you know, discipline the coach or, or get new coaches in there or try to find some people, the coach say, look, we, we'd like to finish first, but we want our kids to be able to have a good time, enjoy themselves, and look back at this as, as an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Game's over. Let's go have some ice cream and talk with your buddies. But I, I also understand that the pressure on kids today with the social media and with the you know, with the with the money that's out there that's available and the parents are saying, you know, oh boy, if, if he could just get a college scholarship and then if he's the number one draft pick, I mean, those kinds of things didn't exist back in our era. So I, I can I can kind of I can sympathize. I can't empathize because I didn't go through it, but with kids and the pressure they have, but it still goes back to the basic things that we, we've been talking about. And in my case, you know, I had the perfect parents. As you said, it was never their goal for me uh, to go on and play baseball. It was my goal. And they would have been just as happy. Uh, I always said if I didn't play baseball, I would have loved to have been a small-town basketball coach, high school basketball coach. I think that would have been a lot of fun. You could have influenced a a lot of young men. Um, But they never, you know, forced me into anything. They just let me enjoy it and, and play because I did enjoy it. Yeah. Now, as parents, we it's it's I don't want to say it's our job, but our kids are going to go through lots of different experiences, good, bad and different. And I'm sure we have parents in our audience that have they probably we probably have 100 parents in our audience, maybe more whose kids are going through this every day, as you're describing. How do you define that to a kid? Because you have to help them define experiences. It's they've got to go through it themselves. But how would you help that young man define that experience so he can move on? Uh. Go a little deeper in that. I'm having a hard time figuring out how I would answer that when you say define. How yeah. would a kid define that? Not to justify the behavior of the coach, not not by any means, but to try to help the young man explain, or how, try to help the young man understand this is what you're dealing with as a coach from the coach's standpoint in terms of, you know, maybe – this is someone who didn't play at a high level, or maybe it's someone who played at a high level but didn't achieve uh, what they wanted to, to. To understand that that young man, he's not bad. He didn't do a bad thing. He's not a bad boy. He, uh, he He's dealing with some misplaced emotions by an adult. I think it starts before that with a community uh, when when they have these meetings 
when they're having their so-called draft and they're putting their teams together. And I think there almost has to be a seminar for coaches. Uh, like if I were asked to do that in a, in a little community that I lived in, I would make sure that those things never happened to a young child. Because I would say to all the coaches, here's the deal. If I'm the head of the coaches picking them for that deal, here's the deal. These kids are out here because they, they think baseball or hockey or lacrosse or whatever would be, would be fun. And we want them to have fun. We want to enjoy it. I don't want any of this pressure of, of uh, how we, we set the expectations so high uh, that we're putting pressure on these young kids. So I think it starts with what I would do in picking coaches. Uh, I remember, I remember uh, Mike Matheny, who was a major league catcher and a major league manager. Mike had to retire young. He had 19 concussions, came out of University of Michigan, and then he was living in the suburbs of uh, of St. Louis. Now you may have read his book. He wrote a book on this, but they asked him if he would be, if he would coach the youth baseball team in, uh, I think it was in Crevecore or Chesterfield, one of the suburbs of uh, St. Louis. He said, let me think about it. And then in a couple of weeks, he called the head of the association and he said, uh, I've decided I will do it, but I'd like you all to come to my house. So all the, all the parents, so all the parents went to his house and he had a contract for each of them. And it set out the rules, no coming to the practices. Uh, we don't want any hollering at the kids. Uh, if I get a phone call, you're asking why your kid isn't playing, you'll be off the team. And he did. He got a phone call from a mother. Why isn't so-and-so playing? And he had to tell the kid that, well, I'm sorry, these are the rules. And your, your mother violated them. And as a result, you're not on the team anymore. So that, that's where it starts, I think, by picking the right coaches. And if you do that, then you'll never have experiences like this 10 year old boy had. Yeah. Those are, uh, and that sounds like a contract I have with, with our parents and players too. I think the, the, the great part with Mike's situation is he had the leverage with that. Um, we're going through a, a situation here where I'm from, where they're having a hard time now getting youth coaches, uh, to coach these really inclusive programs and I use inclusive in a good way where it's they're trying to get as many kids as possible out there playing and part of it is you have two two extreme factions you have one faction that's a they think they're justified in this win at all costs load the team let me have a parent quote unquote I'm doing air quotes on an audio show but try to stack the automatic draftees on the team by bringing the parents on as volunteer coaches or you have the other coach that just doesn't you know plays the other side of it where they absolve the kids of, they say winning, but it's really, you know, doing things the right way, showing up on time, you know, running hard, playing hard. They take the other extreme with it. And then you get a person, as you're describing, like Mike, and, I, and I've been in that situation before where you try to have some standards for the parents, but you got you to get the support of the people that are running the, running the show. So I'm glad he did that that way. And that, that should be a model. Um, the greatest thing that, that that parent could do that called him, and I always encourage our parents, we're trying to teach these kids to grow up and how to talk with adults. You, you can call me and tell me that, hey, just want to give you a heads up, you know, little Johnny's struggling right now. Um, I would then advise the parent and say, hey, have him come and talk to me like we agreed upon. And here's the couple of questions. Here's how he probably wants to phrase it or you do it in your way. I'll talk with him. I'll help him through the situation, give him some markers. And then you've got to you've got to reinforce that when he comes home and say, hey, whatever your coach says, you know, I'm not at practice, um, that type of stuff. There, there, there is a way they can get engaged. But, boy, it's gotten to be a mess out there. You're right. Well, I've, I think you mentioned a word a while ago, draft. And there are there are drafts now yeah. where little league teams get together and see there's another thing I would change. I'd put all the names. Say you're in the same community and, and you're going to play at the same ballpark small town, or if you're in a bigger city, you have your little section where you're all going to play. Okay, I want all the names of the kids that are going to play Little League Baseball today. We're going to put them in a basket, and we're going to draw, and we're going to draw your team. You're not going to draft it. We're just going to draw your team, and here's your guys. Go have a good time. See, that would that would kill these parents that are actually spending time scrutinizing the talent of young eight-year-olds so they can draft them for their little league team. So we got to abolish that too. I like that idea. They, they laugh at me when I do, when I, whenever I volunteer. Now, granted, I get my two boys on the team or my two girls and, and they're, they're, they're 
all, all four pretty decent athletes. So, um, I do get a head start in that regard, but when I am involved with one of these drafts, I never watch the players. I do ask my children, I said, tell me who works hard. Tell me who you'd want to be around. And they're honest with me and they know what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the best athlete. I'm looking for the kids that'll listen, pay attention. But I turn around and I just watch the parents and I ask the people in charge, who's, who's, uh, which parent is that kid? And they'll be like, well, that's number 42. And I just like, boom, not on my list, not on my list. And I cross them off that way. And they think it's funny, but I, I, I tell them, I said, I'm going to enjoy myself this year. And that parent's just sitting there, they're watching, not even really even clapping, just observing, or they're not paying attention at all. They're off, you know, uh, letting the kid be a kid, yeah. but jumping up and screaming during tryouts, trying to coach him from the sidelines. <laughs> what happens when the game goes on? Like it's, uh, I, like, I don't want any part of that. Boom. And it just makes my life enjoyable. And lo and behold, every year we're competitive. Uh, I, my record, I'm retired as a, as a college coach. So my record's done. I don't get to increase it or or crush it in any way. So it's, uh, I think the, I think you hit a word in our pre-show notes, ego is yeah. the problem. Yeah, that, that's, that's really what it is. And, uh, I, I can sense it just with people that are well-meaning, but you can just hear by their conversation. They just, they automatically get trapped into, you know, Johnny's throwing 88 already and he's 15. Well, is he having fun? Is he enjoying it? You know, and that, that just gets lost. And again, it's the ego of the parents and the ego of the coaches and, that's the root of the problem, and that's what we have to try to change. I mean, you don't really need eight, nine, ten-year-olds. You don't really need a coach as much as you just need somebody that is willing to give his time and organize it. That's it. You make out a lineup card and say, okay, we're going to have a little practice on Tuesday evening, and uh, we'll take a little batting practice and infield and whatever. You don't have to be a coach that can teach him anything. You just have to be a coach that has some compassion for young people and encourage them to have a good time and enjoy what they're doing and forget about the skills of being a coach uh, to teach things at that level. I, I never had, I had one coach in Legion ball that said, you're a left-hand pitcher. I think you should start from the first base side of the pitching rubber. I think that's what most pitchers do. I said, okay, that's what I did. It's the only thing he ever told me, you know, and we just went out and played. And uh, I can honestly look back at my uh, American Legion experience and say it was that was fun. I enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, we were pretty good. We won. But, uh, you know, uh, we didn't shed any tears when we lost the game. We didn't have parents screaming at us. It was OK. We lost today. What's our next game? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. They're, they're so overcoached uh, and undertaught nowadays and overtrained. And the conversation in the stands is, well, my son's hitting coach said, or my son's pitching. They all have these extra special people around them. And I, I kind of laugh and I'm looking at what goes on in the field. And I'm thinking, wow, these people should get their money back with what's right. going on. These kids are, but here, here's a great stat they should keep in youth sports. Maybe this can be brought to when we, when we do our round table with, with uh, the powers to be out there. I had 13 kids in my team this past year. All 13 are signed up to play again next year for youth sport. That's well, a great, that's, great that's number. A, yeah, that's a good indication that they enjoyed it. Yeah, and that they, uh, and they really don't have to be over, over coached in anything. Simple things like, hey, we're going to teach. I wish there was some uniformity with it, where, you know, not overly, but hey, by the time they're, you know, eight years old, we're going to teach them how to hold a baseball and direct the baseball properly and, and make hitting pitching one thing a year. And it'd be amazing how good these kids would be when they're 15 years old. Yeah. You know, you've heard this, you've heard this probably a lot more than I have, but uh, you'll hear so-and-so well, you know, my son, uh, he played, he played uh, baseball or little league baseball this year, but he's not going to play this year because he really didn't like the coach last year, you know? So yeah. you want to you have a coach, that's not really a coach. He's just an adult that's there helping you. I, I think we'll change the word coach to encourager. We want to, is anybody out there would like to take a job to encourage young people to enjoy their life? And then you, then you put them in charge of the team and uh, see once how they do versus the ego driven ones that are going to think they're going to turn them into a professional when they're nine years old. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. We kept you almost an hour today and then uh, audience doesn't know because it's pre-recorded, but got you started a little late and I apologize for that. But uh, how, how do you want to leave? We get a lot of great nuggets for, 
for a lot of different factions of our audience today. How do you want to leave our audience today? Well, uh, I, I, I hope you enjoy the World Series, but I think since, since we we're talking on youth sports, I just hope that somehow uh, the message out there, there's a number of people listening that can in their own community uh, find coaches that you don't even have to call them coaches. You just want somebody that can organize 10 or 12 young boys and girls to get together and play a sport that they think they like and help them to like it even more. That's it. I think it's a great message and sounds simple in nature, but boy, if, if, uh, if we could have uh, a coach in each community that listens to our show apply that today or in their next opportunity, I think we'd slowly start turning the, turning the corner with this and, and having more kids enjoying the game. And as a result, uh, you'll get more better players that way, I promise you. All those. Yeah, and I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the side, one of the byproducts of that is I think we're going to start raising young athletes that have fewer injuries because they're not going to be forced to do things at, uh, at a young age that their bodies will not allow them to do yet uh, by just letting them go out there and play at their own pace and have a good time. I agree. And I think the, uh, the social emotional component will go right along with that. You'll get kids that'll be able to socialize better. And since we're not revving up their engines too early physically and socially, their, their, their emotions will be a little more even keeled and be able to handle life basically. So, I agree. Well, great show again today, Jim. We appreciate you so much. The Hall of Famer, Jim Cott on Cott's Corner, episode 335. Uh, I want to thank our audience, 55,000 plus, helped us get on the iHeart, their powerful podcast network. We have a treat for you guys, Blackout Coffee. Uh, all of our listeners, if you go to Blackout Coffee, and I'll put the, the link online, and you order coffee uh, through their, their website, and you put David, D-A-V-I-D, capital letters, with the number 20 after, you'll get a 20% discount when you get the check out there. So that's for you guys for supporting us. We'll try to do something like that every month. And since we have Veterans Day coming up uh, soon, uh, this is a, this is a, a very military-friendly uh, company. Uh, support our, our rights as Americans, and we appreciate them. So I thought it was great, a great partnership, great marriage to go through the next month with you guys. And we started a little early. We weren't supposed to start till November one which is tomorrow, but I got us going yesterday afternoon. I got too excited about uh, about blackout coffee. I'm actually drinking it right now as we do the show. So uh, with that, uh, Jim, thanks so much. You have a great rest of the week, and we look forward to your show next week. All right, Dave. Thank you. Wanna know what you think? Wanna know what you think?